According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Hebrews. Join me, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 3. We're ready this morning to move on to verses 7 and 8. I think we covered what we need to cover in verse 6, although I will refer back to it uh, a couple of different times this morning because what we covered a week ago is so um, powerful and so necessary. If we, if we go off the rails in verse 6, I think it's a, it's a total train wreck after that for the rest of the book. Uh, I think folks get scared in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Calvinists, Arminians, others that don't know what they are, um, they, they, they reach verses in Hebrews that they struggle with, and then they reach other verses in Hebrews that they don't like. All right, because they don't know if they're Calvinist or Arminian or what they are. And whatever they are, uh, there's, there's a verse for you to not like in Hebrews. And so it's important, I think, for us to know where we are and what we are, but to just let the book speak for itself and to recognize that this is my favorite book of all 66. And the scary verses uh, need to be scary, but scary in the right way so that we have the appropriate fear of the Lord, the appropriate reverence before Him. We don't want to fall short of the rest that He has provided for us in, uh, in time, the special blessings in time that are for us today in our priesthood, the, the, the rest that has been provided for us as a stewardship, as a priesthood in Christ. And that's what we're going to see. And so a week ago we dealt with it out of verse 6. Today we're going to get the same doctrine all over again out of verses 7 and 8 and the, and the verses that follow. It's a quotation from the Old Testament. It comes to us from the Psalms, and so we want to we want to understand it for what it is. All right, God is spirit; He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to assure that each one of us is in fellowship, prepared to receive eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth, and calling upon your faithfulness this hour to open the eyes of our understanding. Father, I thank you for the privilege that it is to study to show ourselves approved. And in particular, Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit who guides us into all things, even the deep things of God. Father, we don't shy away from any verse. We don't hide from any passage of Scripture or any doctrine. Father, the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. So we, uh, we thank you for what has been revealed. And with reverence, Father, we want to come before you, especially with, res- with respect to verses that, that, uh, that good men have handled in, uh, in different ways. And Father, uh, there's reasons why they handle them in different ways, and, and uh, there's reasons why we handle them the way we handle them. And so, Father, we call upon your faithfulness to... Uh, Uh, to take this word and minister it to our soul this morning. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so the, the chapter kicks off with our high priest. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. This is a call to worship. This gets your attention. This is like when you're sitting in a room and you hear, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. You, you know, oh, wait a minute, it's time to go. This is Bible class. This is serious. And so when the author of Hebrews says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, he is grabbing hold of his audience, his readers, 
every one of which is saved, every one of which is a believer, is a partaker of this heavenly calling. Consider and keep on considering Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And the rest of this chapter, the rest of chapter 4, the rest of this book really is taking a spiritual priesthood and showing us what this priesthood is all about. How do we operate as believer priests in the church age? How do we operate as the body and bride of Christ, but specifically as the uh, priesthood that we have in Christ? What the uh, Hebrews calls the Melchizedek priesthood that we have for the dispensation of the church. So consider Keep on considering Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He faith, being faithful to him who appointed him, being faithful, as we consider him, he presently is still now, today, all the time, being faithful. It's a present participle of being. This verse is not celebrating how faithful he was 2,000 years ago. Okay, I get that. I've preached that. You, you get that. He was faithful 2,000 years ago. He was so faithful. He went to the cross. He was so faithful. I'm not going to minimize that today, but I'm not going to preach that today because this verse doesn't speak to that. This verse doesn't say that he was faithful back in the day. It says he is presently being faithful. So as I presently consider him, he is presently being faithful in as the apostle and high priest of our confession, being faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was. Now there you're okay with the was. You want to talk about Moses? Great. That was back then. That was. Moses was faithful back in the day. In all his house, in all his house, <clears throat> the Old Testament, as Israel was brought out of the uh, bondage in Egypt, Moses was the leader that God lifted up. Moses was faithful in God's house. God's house at that time was the tabernacle. They built the tabernacle uh, under Moses' leadership. They operated in that tabernacle for 40 years. In fact, beyond that period of time, beyond Moses' death, the tabernacle remained the house of God until the temple was built. Then the temple of Solomon's day became the house of God. And we want to be clear when we talk about the house, we're not talking about being saved. That's the first mistake. All right, it's the first mistake that Calvinists make. It's the first mistake Arminians make. First mistake everybody makes when they get to this passage and they talk about the house of God, they make it an equivalent for being saved. So just throw that out. Moses was faithful in all his house. And so as we dealt with this, let me just skip ahead here. I've got to get past one, two, three, four. No house builds itself, right? Five. Moses' faithfulness was historically unparalleled. It was a faithfulness as a testimony for us to learn from. We'll get more of that today. Verse six, presently being faithful, presently over his house. All right, that's key. Presently being faithful, presently over his house. We have to keep the analogy intact. We can't switch streams in the middle of a horse, right? Or we can't switch horses in the middle of a stream. Whichever way, we can't switch halfway through. That destroys the analogy. The analogy is Moses faithful in his house. The, the completion of that is Jesus faithful in his house. And Jesus presently faithful in his house. The apostle and high priest of our confession. That's his house, okay? It's not emphasizing our salvation, it's our priestly function, even as Moses was in his house. 
keeping the analogy intact, this house is not a domicile, it's not an immediate family, it's not a dynasty. When you read the word house in the Bible, there's a lot of different ways you can read it. The house of David, right? That's talking about a dynasty. We're talking about a lineage. We're talking about heirs. We're talking about the the throne of David, right? The house, uh, sometimes house is used that way. But sometimes house is used of a of a brick and mortar structure, right? Sometimes house is just a, a place where you live with your kids, with your wife and your kids and your animals. That's your house, okay? The Bible uses that a lot. The Bible also talks about a house as a, as, as a household. That would include your immediate family, your extended family, your servants, your animals, your slaves. Um, it would include a, a larger group than just your immediate nuclear family. Sometimes it's the whole dynasty, like the house of Windsor, Right? Or uh, the House of York, the House of Lancaster, if you want to get into the War of the Roses and some British history there. Um, So there's houses, right? The biggest one the Bible uses, though, is the temple, the tabernacle, the temple. Hundreds of uses. When God talks about not bringing the hire of of a harlot or the wages of a dog into my house, he talks about uh, my house again and again and again, hundreds of times. The house is the tabernacle. 85 times in just the chapters from 1 Kings 6 to 1 Kings 9. Just read those chapters sometimes. Solomon's building the temple in 1 Kings chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. And 85 times that it's called my house. They were to build my house. They were to pray towards my house. Yahweh would be talking about my house. And it centers on the temple. So for Moses, the house of God was the tabernacle. And we went through all these verses. If you missed it, go get the MP3. It's on the website. Uh, Exodus 23.19, Exodus 34.26, Deuteronomy 23.18, Joshua 6.24, Joshua 9.23, Judges 18.31, 1 Samuel 1.7 and 24. That's when Hannah was praying for a son and she gives birth to Samuel and he gets dedicated to the house of God. Uh, 1 Samuel 3.15, Eventually, the house of God becomes the the temple. When the tabernacle is replaced, it's now the temple that becomes the house of God. But now we've got something different in the church age. We have something different. And when Jesus spoke to that woman at the well, he made that very clear. The church age is something new. The church age is something different. And uh, the, the priestly worship center house in the church age is the body of Christ. We are the temple of God. And performing, we have housework to perform in this house even as Moses had housework to perform in his house, right? Housework in terms of our priestly service. What do we do as priests? And that's what Hebrews centers on. What are our sacrifices? What what is our ministry as priests? And so uh, for Jesus, the priestly worship center house, quote unquote, is the body of Christ, okay? So we talk about our priestly worship center, performing our housework in spirit and in truth with no reference whatsoever to our salvation, our regeneration, our eternal life, etc. The tabernacle, Moses was faithful in the tabernacle. He was faithful in God's house. And nothing about that had anything to do with the fact that Moses was a believer and has eternal life, right? It has nothing to do with being saved or not saved. It has to do with whether we are faithful in our priestly ministry. And Moses was faithful. Jesus is faithful. We are called to be faithful because Jesus is, all right? And that's the impact. It has nothing to do with being saved or not saved. It has nothing to do as a test of whether we're truly elect or not. It has nothing to do with any of that, okay? Because it says, which house we are if. So um, 
<coughs> verse 6, Christ was fa- Christ faithful. Don't say was, Christ faithful. <coughs> or even take that out too. Okay, they're, they're just helping words that are put in there, so put more helpful helping words in there. Okay, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ as a son over his house. Okay, but Christ as a son over his house. And if you're going to put the helping words in there, faithful, go ahead, but make it is faithful because the present faithfulness is still uh, in, in context here from verse 2. But Christ is presently now faithful, the apostle and high priest of our confession, as a son, not a servant, over his house, which house we are. And I prefer which to whose, but either way, I don't think changes the sense of it. It's the, the body of Christ is the temple. The body of Christ is the, the, uh, the, the church, universal, capital C church, right? You understand? We're not talking about local church. We're not talking about Austin Bible Church or Lost Pines Bible Church or anything. We're talking about the church universal is the temple today. It is the church age temple. And so Christ is faithful as a son over his house, which house we are, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And again, this is where people panic because of the if. But it's not a question of if we're saved or if we lose our salvation. It's a question of if we are the temple or if we are not the temple. And that's what I'm here to tell you. When you are carnal, when you are out of fellowship, walking in darkness, you're still saved, but you're not the temple. You are not the temple. What fellowship hath light with darkness? What, what harmony has Christ with Belial, right? When you are, when you should be the holy temple of God and you're out there in your unholy carnality, you are not the temple, see? And once you grasp that, then the rest of the book, it's easy. <laughs> you mean I can still be saved but not be the temple? That's right. You're not the temple, okay? And if it helps to draw it out with like, uh, top circle, bottom circle, remember those diagrams? You know, where you're in fellowship or out of fellowship? It's the same thing. So just put temple in there. When you're in fellowship, you're the temple. When you're out of fellowship, you're not the temple. And that's uh, what it comes down to. So the priestly worship center house is, or temple is the body of Christ performing our housework in spirit and in truth. So when you're carnal, you're not body of Christ performing your priesthood in spirit and in truth. Okay? Has no reference whatsoever to our salvation. So, presently being presently being his house. Presently being his house. If you're here this morning and you're in fellowship, you're the temple of God. Okay? If you're sitting here this morning and you're not in fellowship, if you're three kinds of carnal because you drove on 183 or, you know, whatever... There are roads in this town that will make you carnal, all right? (laughs) Now, you can fix that. Rebound, I mean, confession is easy, and you can get back in fellowship, you know, with confession. And when you are in fellowship, a believer in fellowship is temple of God, okay? So, presently being his house, which means operating within our priestly function, is contingent upon our being faithful, holding fast our confidence and boast, holding fast our confession. And again and again and again, from chapter 3 to 4 to 6 to 10, the imperative for us is to hold fast. 
hold fast. Don't let go. I mean, how hard is it to hold fast? Don't let go of something and certainly don't throw it away. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And that's what we're called to do, is to hold fast. The fact of the matter is, is we don't have to sin. God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And when we walk by the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so no believer today has to sin ever again. Okay? I know that's shocking sometimes, but that's the truth. We sin when we stop walking in the light. We sin when we stop walking by means of the Spirit. Because when you walk by means of the Spirit, you cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. We saw that in Galatians chapter 5. So this is the essence of worshiping in spirit and in truth. And John 4 addresses this in verses 23 and 24. Here's Jesus talking to this woman at the well. And he says to her, an hour is coming and now is. You know, this this woman, I can't wait to meet her. She's a believer and she uh, was an Old Testament believer. Of course, this is before Pentecost. I presume that she lived long enough to see Pentecost and then to become a New Testament believer, but we don't see her again after this chapter in the Bible, so I guess I can't know that for a fact. Um, but in John 4, he's talking to her, and, and when, she ex- when he exposes her sin, she knows he's a prophet, and she's not offended. <laughs> she's excited. She's thrilled. She's not embarrassed to have all of her you know, ugly sins exposed. She's thrilled that now she's going to get her Bible questions answered because she's face to face with a prophet for the first time in her life. And so she wants to know, she says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people, that is you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. All right, so that's their temple. The Samaritans put a temple on Mount Gerizim. They had their own Pentateuch, the Samaritan Pentateuch in competition to the Hebrew Pentateuch, all right? And now she wants it answered. Hey, are we right or are you right? Is this whole thing a Jewish thing or a Samaritan thing? Or or what do we got to do? And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So that's the gracious way to answer her question that you Samaritans are off track. Uh, God didn't select Mount Gerizim to be his, his uh, house. But then he doesn't stop there though because that's, there's, a, there's a bigger message to give here. He says, but an hour is coming and now is. All right, Something new has happened when the word became flesh. Something greater than the temple is here. And, uh, and so Jesus is now in their, the, 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 God is in their midst. Christ is here. And they've got an opportunity now to look right at God as they look at Christ. An hour is coming, that's church age, and now is, that's the age of the incarnation with uh, the Word made flesh. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. All right, so there you have it. And I think of all the different studies of, um, of worship, they ignore the fact that God seeks worshipers and He sets the parameters on how He can be approached. And humans have been rebelling against that since Cain and Abel. You know, Cain thought he could approach God any old way. And Abel brought a sacrifice by faith because he brought the sacrifice in obedience to what God told him to do. God seeks, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what we're talking about when we talk about being the temple of God in the church age. 
We're talking about you and me worshiping in spirit and in truth, being filled with the Holy Spirit, not having the unconfessed sin that puts that barrier between us and God. But we keep short accounts. We confess our sins. We stay in fellowship. We want to maximize our time that we're walking in the light. We want to minimize our time that we're walking in darkness. In other words, we want to confess sooner rather than later. If we get convicted that we're in darkness, then don't delay. Don't put it off. Don't linger. That's tempting, I know. I've done it. We've all done it, right? That, that, because for the moment, you know, yeah, you know what's wrong, but you're just having too much fun and you, you want to get just, you know, one more lick in before then you can repent. And no, okay? <laughs> um, no, confess now. Because delaying confession only compounds your discipline. God will compound that with, with interest when you deliberately harden your heart and fail to confess under conviction. All right. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six. So it's all about walking in faith, walking in the light. Different uh, authors will use different expressions, but we're talking about that, uh, that, that uh, being in fellowship is maybe the most common, right? We're talking about our, our ABC reader on spirituality versus carnality. It's one or the other at any given moment. You're either in fellowship or out. You're either walking in, in the spirit or you're walking in the flesh. It's one or the other. You, there's no blend between spirituality and carnality. But when you are spiritual, you are the temple of God, which house we are, if, if we hold fast. All right, so now verses 7 and 8. He goes back to the Old Testament and he now gives a warning. Hebrews 3, verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> therefore, <laughs> all right, therefore, on that basis, because we want to hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. We don't want to let go. You know, Moses let go. Moses, Moses didn't enter the promised land. Moses is the great example of this illustration and even he failed to enter the rest. So therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. I'm going to keep going uh, down through verse 11. Uh, Where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways as I swore in my wrath. What does it say? As I swore in my wrath. What does it not say? As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There was a place that he was taking them to, the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of rest. And he was taking them there. Most of them didn't get there. All right? All of them got redeemed. All of them were brought out of Egypt. And nobody went back. There's no loss of salvation. That's eternal security, right? There's no loss of salvation. Every single one of them was redeemed. They were brought out of bondage through a one-way door. That Red Sea only parted once. (laughs) And when it crashed down and killed Pharaoh's army, it never parted ever again. When you and I get saved, that's a one-way door. We are brought out of our bondage to sin. There's no going back. We cannot lose our salvation. Now, we can fall in the wilderness. You and I can fail. You and I can fail to enter into the Sabbath rest that's designed for the church age today. But not one of us can lose our salvation. 
We want to be clear on this, and hopefully the, uh, the image is, is unmistakable. So, what do we have here? We have an Old Testament quotation. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11 is an Old Testament quotation. It comes from Psalm 95. It comes from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, specifically 7b through 11, or some people, depends on how they, I, I'm fine with 7b. Some people will say 7d through 11 because they've broken up verse 7 into four separate parts. Um, I'm, I'm fine with just 7b. It's the last part of verse 7 down through verse 11. It comes from the Septuagint in the Greek translation of Psalm 95. In the Septuagint, they'll be careful. I think it's Psalm 94 or Psalm 96. It's got a different number in the, in the Septuagint if you're looking. If you use Logos, you don't care anymore because Logos will keep them synchronized. Logos is smarter than we are. So that when you go to the Hebrew text of Psalm 95 and you have the Greek Septuagint in parallel, it's smart enough to know that the Greek uh, Septuagint on that is, uh, is, is one psalm off. All right. Um, so that's what we have here. Then in verses 12 through 19, we get it all over again. In Hebrews 3, 12 through 19, we get a commentary on that same text. The author of Hebrews gives us a commentary on that same text. And so a lot of the verses get repeated, requoted, especially that today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, um, it's going to happen in throughout chapter three and on into chapter four. Uh, you, you can spot these and in four seven. There's another today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Also, you want you know, something else that gets repeated. I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. <laughs> I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, because that becomes the warning. That becomes what we have to be afraid of, not losing our salvation. But we, our fear is falling short of that rest. And that's a very real fear. And sadly, I think the bulk of Christendom today has fallen short of that rest, continues to fall short of that rest. And so this becomes important, all right? So uh, we have a quotation, then we have a commentary from the very same text. Uh, when we get into chapter 4, we're still dealing with a Psalm 95 context, and it then provides an exhortation. An exhortation for today comes in chapter 4, but it's grounded in the same text. It's grounded in the same warning that's given. Exhortation for today grounded in that same text. And so really um, Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 11 is a unit, if you will, but it's a, it's a, it's, it's a context that's all centered on Psalm 95. So, um, let's deal with that, all right? Also, pay attention to the impact on today. I like to talk about today a lot. Today is a neat word uh, because um, tomorrow we're going to have a different today, okay? And it's not today, it's not, we don't have tomorrow's today yet. Um, we will tomorrow. That'll be our today tomorrow. That'll be our today. And, and yesterday, we had a today yesterday, and we're never going to have that today again. That today is gone. That today is never coming back. All right? And so we want to we pay attention to that because that's our blessing in the body of Christ. We operate in a series of todays. And we recognize that today, today, this today, today, 
could be our very last today. This could be it. This could be the day the trumpet sounds. The Lord himself descends with a shout. The dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain, we're caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. <laughs> oh, that it were today, right? That's our, that's our Maranatha prayer day by day, as long as it is called today. And so um, there are different today messages, though, in Hebrews, and they're not quite the same. Uh, and so we've already seen one of them. It came out of Psalm 110. And that one was also significant. In Psalm 110, the father said to the son, uh, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And that was, that was huge. That was cosmic in its scope. I mean, that was, that was a study that goes from Alpha to Omega that encompasses something new that's never been before. That was the very first today ever. That was the very first today at the boundary, I call it the alpha moment, at the boundary from, t- from eternity past to time itself. That's time, right? We have moments from Alpha to Omega, and before there was the Alpha moment was just God in eternity past. And then after the Omega moment, there's just God and us and the elect angels in eternity future. But in between eternity past and eternity future is time. And time, this created dimension of time, space and time, this created dimension that we have is a series of moments. It's a series of days. The Alpha moment was the beginning of the humanity of Jesus Christ. He says, today I have begotten thee. And it was the very first today ever. And it is so significant. It's mentioned in Psalm 110. It's mentioned in Psalm 2. It's mentioned in Hebrews. It has two Hebrews usages. The author of Hebrews references it twice in 1.5 and 5.5. But this is a different today application. This is a today application that throws it to humanity and says, today if you will hear his voice. And so today is then applied, not just in the church, don't get me wrong, because in Hebrews we're talking about church, but in Psalm 95 we're talking to Israel. In Psalm 95, David did what we're doing. David's saying to his people, look back at Moses and don't harden your heart. We're doing the same thing today in the book of Hebrews. We're saying, look back at Moses and don't harden your heart. We're just bringing the Psalm 95 message forward into the church age and then adding to it the dimensions that apply to our priesthood in Christ. All right? Does that make sense? I hope we're clear on that. So while the 100, Psalm 110 today has two Hebrew usages, the Psalm 95 today has five. The Psalm 95 today gets used in 3, 7, 13, and 15, and then it gets used twice in 4, 7. All right, and we've already read Hebrews 3, 7. I stopped at verse 11, so we didn't see verse 13. Let's just grab these here. Verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's the warning. All right, we're going to hit that hard because there's no exceptions. There's no footnotes. There's no, uh, you know, you can't weasel out of that in the Greek or anything. (laughs) Well, I'm a pastor. That wouldn't be everybody. Any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. There we have it. Okay. That's our use. And so that's today. Day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you, not one of you, will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, no exceptions, no exemptions. That applies to pastors, it applies to everybody. And that's the use in verse 13. In chapter 15, 
While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me today. And this is the blessing. God speaks to us every day. So today, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Chapter 4 and verse 7, he again fixes a certain day today. You know, the Jews had a Sabbath. It was the seventh day. We have a Sabbath. It's today. Isn't that beautiful? All right. It's today. And all the debates between, and I get it, there, there are some Seventh-day Adventists and some other groups that prefer Saturday over Sunday for their you know, great big go-to-church day. Uh, you know, and most of Christendom adopts Sunday as the Lord's Day, and this is our big go-to-church day for the week. But really, what's the difference between today and tomorrow? Between Sunday and Monday? Because Monday is going to be today. When we get there, it's today. And, and our Sabbath is not the seventh day, it's not the eighth day, uh, which is the first day of the week. It's today. Today is our day of rest. Today is our day to stop our work as the Father stopped His work. Okay? And we're going to talk about what does it mean to enter into our rest? What does it mean to be of that faith rest life? And if I hit it hard enough, I'll even get it before Al Dowdy's message on January 14th, because Al Dowdy's teaching the faith rest life on January 14th at 6 p.m. I think I'll slow down so I don't give it away. (laughs) But day after day, as long as it's still called today, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David. Ah, you know what? Saying through David. Guess what? This is the only clue we have that Psalm 95 is from David. Okay? All right, so there it is. Psalm 95 is a call to worship. And it forms the basis for any exhortation to any generation. So join me. Let's go back to Psalm 95. Let's look at it. Because there are six and a half verses before you get to the part that the author of Hebrews is quoting here. Or even six and three quarters verses before you get to it. So Psalm 95. And let's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful psalm in its entirety. It fits well within this uh, portion of psalms that were later collected and put in a sequence as they would uh, go and worship at the temple. All right. Batteries are low in my Bible. Pages are flipping slower. Psalm 95. Not a clue anywhere in this text. David's name's not mentioned. Not in the prescript, not in any verse. Um, the Septuagint gives a hint as to David's authorship. Uh, I don't hold the Septuagint as God-breathed and inspired, but Hebrews is. And Hebrews 4.7 says, David said this word. So I'm fine with that. <clears throat> oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. And, and what is this? Praise to the Lord, that's hallelujah, and warning against unbelief. Warning against unbelief. When we talk about the warning against unbelief, we're talking to believers. <laughs> you ever think about that? Okay. To an unbeliever, do you warn an unbeliever about unbelief? <laughs> or do you give them the gospel and urge them to believe? Okay. But it's believers that are warned about unbelief. It's like the doctrine of divorce. Who do you teach? Mar- married people need the doctrine of divorce because they're the ones that are married. I guess a single person should learn the doctrine before they're married. Helpful. Learn it sooner rather than later. But clearly, a single person cannot commit the sin of divorce. 
So it's a married person that needs the doctrine. Likewise, apostasy. No unbeliever can apostatize. Apostasy can only be done by a believer. Only a believer can fall away from the faith. An unbeliever is not even in the faith. Right? You can't depart from something you've never been in. So, same thing here. A warning against unbelief is the warning against the unbelief of the believer. What happens when someone who's saved by grace through faith stops walking by faith? What happens if day by day they abandon the faith experience? Does that mean they throw away the faith position? Of course not. You're saved by grace through faith and that's your positional truth, but then you must walk by grace through faith. That's your experiential truth, right? The experiential sanctification. And that's why warnings against unbelief are more often than not given to believers, to saved ones. That's why warnings to repent are given to saved ones far more frequently than they're given to unsaved ones. All right. So it's a call to worship. It's a warning against unbelief. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. Now later on, this was incorporated in the temple worship service. But when David first wrote this, there was no temple. There was just a worn down, ratty, nasty, decrepit tabernacle that embarrassed him. And David wanted to build something new and glorious. And yet... We recognize that approaching God is a spiritual function for any humble believer that wants to praise Him. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for it was He who made it. His hands formed the dry land. His hands formed us. Okay? doesn't say that, I just added that. Verse 6, Come, Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So understand this. The the, the quotation picks up late in verse 7 with today if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, all right? The, The quotation in Hebrews picks up late because the author of Hebrews is taking this and adapting it to a church application. But still, the whole call to worship context, we can't lose sight of that. It's a call to worship. It's the basis for any generation. David preached this in his day. He preached this telling people in his day, look back to Moses in that example. Jesus preached it in his day. said, look back to Moses in his example. Paul preached it in 1 Corinthians. said, look back to Moses in his example. The author Hebrews preached it in his book. said, look back to Moses in his example. I'm preaching it this morning in 2018 AD, saying, look back to Moses in his example. It's a timeless illustration. For believers to be faithful, to not harden your heart, to listen to what God says. Any, it's an exhortation to any generation. While Psalm 95 is anonymous, Hebrews 4, 7 attributes it to David, so I'm fine with that. Likewise with Psalm 2, uh, Acts 2 attributes it to David, so I'm fine with that. If Scripture assigns the authorship, I'm good with that. I'll take that. <clears throat> the scope of this exhortation worships Yahweh, It features his pasture, his hand, his voice, and his rest. It's all his. His pasture, his hand, his voice, his rest. Okay? And we can't lose sight of that. That's the backdrop for Psalm 95. That's also the setting for Hebrews 3. Okay? Now the author of Hebrews introduced it differently. He didn't use those first six verses from Psalm 95. Instead, what did he do? 
He said, let us consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, being faithful over his house as Moses was. So he uses a slightly different introduction, but he's still, the author of Hebrews still puts his readers into a priestly mindset. So that when we hear today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. Okay? So it's a worship context. Worshiping Yahweh. His pasture, his hand, his voice, and his rest. So come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice. Okay? And isn't it sad that the sheep of his pasture, the people of his hand, or the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand, isn't it a shame that he's speaking to us today and believers choose not to listen to his voice? They don't want to hear it. They would much rather appoint somebody else. Oh, you go in there. You go talk to him. You come back. Tell me what he said. You be the intermediary. Go, go. And then Israel was terrified. They wanted Moses. Well, you just go in there, talk to him, come back, tell us what he said. We'll do whatever you tell us that he said. You know, if you said he said, then we'll do what you say. And that, that's not us, okay? We are face to face with God the Father in Christ. How powerful is that? The high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one day a year. We get to go in day after day as long as it is called today. Wow, how amazing is that? So here we have it. Now, in the 15th century BC, Moses was faithful in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You know, when you're called to be faithful, when you're called to listen, you say, well, how tough is that? Well, it gets tougher, especially if you surround yourself with fools that aren't listening. And then uh, you want to go, that's why we've been studying in Proverbs, come out from their midst and be separate. Don't surround yourself with those fools. If you surround yourself with those fools, then you can't tell the difference. People look at you and think you're with them. You know why? Because you're with them. <laughs> that's why. You want to be with the right group. You want to be with brothers and sisters that fear the Lord, that are listening to His voice. Deuteronomy 32.5. <clears throat> They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you, has made you, and established you? Okay, He's your creator. He's your maker. He's your redeemer. He's sacrificed to give your freedom. And you're not listening to him? That's a crooked and perverse generation. So Moses was faithful. David was faithful. In the 11th century B.C., David was faithful in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. David was faithful. Remember, that was the crowd that wanted a king and they chose Saul. (laughs) All right. He had to wait 40 years before he got to become king. But he stayed faithful in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And I believe that's the circumstances in which he composed Psalm 95. Psalm 95 was composed during David's lifetime, but not likely added to the canon until Ezra's lifetime. Okay, and we're fine with this, by the way. This is great in, uh, in uh, Old Testament canonicity. It's like the, the book of Proverbs when Solomon died was a lot smaller than the book of Proverbs today. 
because there was a collection later of Solomon's Proverbs that were added in Hezekiah's day, added to the collection Solomon had. So when, when Solomon died, his book of Proverbs was smaller. It's like when David died. How many Psalms were in the book of Psalms when David died? Well, a lot fewer than we have today. Because a lot of the Davidic Psalms got added in later generations. Finally, the Old Testament canon was complete in the time of uh, Ezra. That's why I include the 11th century B.C. In the 5th and 4th centuries B.C., Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, they were faithful in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And that was the time when Psalm 95 was added to the canon, when it was placed in front of Psalm 96, 97, 98, 99, and 100. This segment of the, of the, of the Psalter is, is powerful as uh, calls to worship, as introducing the uh, believers to temple worship. In any event. So it was so much fun when Lewis was doing those uh, post-captivity studies. The Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah generation, oh my goodness. There's a lot that we can learn from there. And it's the most neglected part of our Bible is uh, Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. In the first century, Jesus was faithful in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Matthew 17, 17, Acts 2, 40. Matthew 17, 17. He's looking around. What does he see? So this crowd comes up and a man approaches Jesus, falls on his knees and says, Lord, have mercy on my son for he is a lunatic. What father hasn't said that? Have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic, is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often in the water. I brought him to your disciples, they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I put up with you, be, or be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And then the miracle, and then he has a chance for private Bible class with his disciples, because they were puzzled why they couldn't drive him out. Acts 2.40, Peter's first sermon on Pentecost, warning the generation that crucified the Christ, and they're pierced to the heart. <laughs> Say, oops, what do we do now? <clears throat> so in this first sermon on Pentecost, and Peter's making it known that the Jewish people crucified their Christ, and it's going to be a while till they get a kingdom. Um, verse 36 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So aren't you in trouble now? <laughs> so when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? You know, we crucified our Christ. He rose again. He's now in heaven. What do we do? So Peter said to them, Repent. This is not a gospel message for today. This is a message for that generation. Those that crucified their Christ. Change your thinking. Each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a way that Old Testament saints can be brought into a New Testament uh, relationship. All right. For the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation.
Keep in mind, the group that does not repent, the group that stays defiant, just a few days prior, or back on Thursday, April 2nd, they very defiantly shook their fist at God and said, His blood be on us and on our children. They said, We have no king but Caesar. They said, Give us Barabbas and crucify this one called the Christ. And they shook their fist at God. This generation is in for a tremendous amount of of wrath. In fact, God will judicially impute the wrath of God for all the blood uh, slain from Abel to Zechariah on this generation. And he executes that in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple and and the dispersion of the Jewish nation. Anyway, Jesus, uh, Paul, I'm sorry, Peter here calls them a perverted generation. And so you and I, Philippians 2.15, what does it say? You and I walk as children of light in the midst of what? A crooked and perverse generation. So here we are. It's nothing new. This exhortation, though, becomes significant. I believe this exhortation becomes far greater, has a far greater impact for the church age than when David preached it, or when Jesus preached it, or when Peter preached it, or when Paul preached it, or when the author of Hebrews preached it. I think today has the greatest impact ever. Because the intensified stage of the angelic conflict has gone from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You and I operate in our children, should the Lord delay long enough. If we go to be with the Lord through physical death and our children live long enough to see another generation of mercy in this church age, let me tell you, it's going to be crookeder and perverserer. Is that a word? More crooked, more perverse than we can even dream of now. That's frightening. The stuff we're seeing now, I wouldn't have thought we would have ever seen. 25 years ago when I became pastor, I never would have dreamed of this. And here it is, commonplace, everywhere. All right. So, today, if you hear, third class condition, maybe you will, maybe you won't. Today, if you hear His voice, then do not harden your hearts. Isn't it interesting that The hardening of the heart is a volitional response to hearing God's voice. (laughs) Believers who hear but don't want to listen. They hear it, they know what it is. You know, when Adam heard the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, he knew what that was. He heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, knew immediately what that was, and so he hid himself. Grabbed Eve and they went hiding. First ever game of hide and seek, right? And It's because he heard the Lord and he knew what it was and didn't want to listen. Today, if you hear. Now that's that's the thing, sadly. You know, the Lord preached it. It's in Revelation. He that has an ear, let him hear. Again and again and again. It comes down to, will you hear? Are you willing to hear? Knowing that with hearing comes accountability. If you hear it, you're accountable. If you don't hear it, you're also accountable. Even worse, now you're under the discipline for not hearing what you were supposed to hear. So a third class condition, if, maybe you will, maybe you won't, error subjunctive, hear his voice. Do not harden. Present subjunctive. Isn't that interesting? An error subjunctive of hearing can lead to a present subjunctive of a hardened heart. The aorist is momentary, the present tense is continual. Isn't that interesting that one act of negative volition by not hearing can have a long-term impact in a present tense hardened heart? That that fascinates me. Okay, 
And this is going to be our warning again and again and again in Hebrews 3, verse 8, verse 13, verse 15, and Hebrews 4, 7. Plus an illustration in Paul's ministry back in Acts 19, 9. So um, Hebrews 3, 8 says, do not harden your hearts. Hey, don't. When the Bible tells you not to do something, you know what that means? Well, yeah, it means don't do it. But it also means you can do it if you so choose. You can do it if you want to. The Bible never commands you to not do something. The Bible never commands. God is not a moron. God does not give imperatives that it's impossible for us to, you know, to do. Right? Not once does he ever give an impossible imperative. So when he says, do not harden your heart, implicit in that command is the recognition that I can harden my heart. Any of us can. If we think we can't, think again. Take heed lest you fall. Anyone. And so uh, we have it in verse 8. We have it again in verse 13. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin can lie to any of us and can convince us that we're okay. It's not sin. It's not so bad. We're good with it. Sin is that deceitful. And any of you are vulnerable to it. That's why we need all of us to encourage all of us. One another cannot be done by yourself. <laughs> the one another commands, you can't, you can't play solitaire uh, with uh, the, one, the one another imperatives of Scripture. Verse uh, uh, 15. While it is said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. As when they provoked me. You see how provocative it is when you harden your hearts. Chapter 4 and verse 7. He again fixes a certain day today saying through David after so long a time, just as been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Okay, some people think if God gives a command that don't do this, and that means I can't do it. It's impossible to do it. That's, that's backwards. That's wrong. He says don't do it because you can. And he doesn't want you to. And look, I think the, the great illustration of this in Paul's ministry is in Acts 19, and it's in the context of a Bible teaching ministry. And some people get a flavor for it. It's novel. They like it for a little bit, but then they realize, ooh, I don't like that. Acts 19. <clears throat> he comes to Ephesus and he finds a bunch of disciples. He finds out they're a little deficient in their doctrine because he says, you know, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized, when you believed? And they said, what are you talking about? We, we, don't, we don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. <laughs> and when somebody asks you a question like that, you go, ooh, here we go. All right, I got some work in front of me. So he said, well, what were you baptized then? They said, into John's baptism. And he goes, oh, okay, here we go. John the Baptist then. Here, and so he, he's able to work with them from that point forward and uh, teaches them about Christ, and they get to be ushered into the church age. What a joy. And uh, so they don't have to live their whole lives as Old Testament believers and then die and go to heaven and then have Old Testament reward waiting for them. They get to come into the body of Christ and have Bride of Christ reward waiting for them. And that's a whole lot better. All right, so we're about 12 men. That's exciting. God can do a lot with 12 men. Now verse 8 then. So he enters into the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. See, we still preach the kingdom even though it's delayed. We still preach the kingdom, but we've got to preach the kingdom biblically as a delayed thing, waiting for the return of the king. 
But now notice, some were becoming hardened and disobedient. Ah, okay. Now this is a problem. Some of those that he got adjusted to the right baptism, they received the Holy Spirit, they crossed into being New Testament believers, but now under this accurate teaching, now, well, some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. So he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. When do you decide, hey, it's time to start a new church here. This one's, this one's gone. This one's done with accurate Bible teaching. And so uh, this took place for two years that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Can you imagine an entire Roman province? An entire Roman province was fully aware of Paul's Bible teaching ministry there in Ephesus. Okay? That's the backdrop to a whole lot of other things. So, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. You've assembled today for doctrine. Do not harden your heart. Are you hearing his voice? Do not harden your heart. Listen to what the Lord's saying. Don't just uh, dismiss it or uh, that's the pastor. He's obviously out of fellowship. <laughs> he got the church carnal this morning. Uh, he does drive 183 after all. What, uh, what else? Might, or maybe it, that's just the uh, antihistamines talking. You know, it's allergy season. Wait a minute. Thus saith the Lord. We are here if you would hear his voice. Do not harden your heart. If you are humble to hear his voice, he is speaking to you loud and clear. Your voice, your, your ear will hear his voice. All right. Then verse 9, where your fathers tried me by testing me. You know, isn't it one of the first commandments? Oh, it says, commandment one is you shall have no other God before me. You shall not make an idol. But what about you shall not put the Lord your God to the test? That's right up there, isn't it? That's a pretty big test in the in in the uh, or a commandment to israel under the law and yet how many times did they do it again and again and again and again ten major rebellions against yahweh in the exodus wanderings by the exodus generation by the knuckleheads that walked through the red sea on dry ground okay that generation staged ten dominant rebellions against the lord god no wonder (laughs) he was not pleased with that generation. With most of them, he was not well pleased. Caleb and Joshua are the only two individuals that then, 40 years later, entered into the land of promise. All right. So do not harden your heart where they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me. And we got both terms there. We often discuss the difference between perazzo for temptation and dokimazo for evaluation. Both are there. Both are there. And this generation was so wicked. They tried me by testing me. And God responded. He said, okay, you're going to test me all right? This is a taste test that's going to last 40 years. How's that? How's that uh, taste test working for you now? They're going to get a good taste of how faithful God is. You see, because they were attacking his faithfulness. They attacked his faithfulness. So he proves his faithfulness for 40 years. And they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. You know, was it the first time they convinced him? The second time? The third time? (laughs) Did it take all 10? 
When was there a time that they did not go astray? When was there a time that they did not harden their heart and not listen? They always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. See, that's the problem. Prolonged carnality hampers your spiritual growth. You don't grow. You don't learn His ways. Jesus told the Pharisees that. You search the Scriptures, but they speak of me. You didn't even recognize me. Okay? And so I swore in my wrath, I'm going to repart the Red Sea, pack them off back to Egypt, put them back under their bondage. No. <laughs> doesn't say that, does it? <coughs> All right. No, they die in the wilderness. That's the point. They, even in unbelief, even under discipline, even under the wrath of God, they never lose their position as a redeemed people. Got that? They fail to enter into rest, yes. They fail to receive the rest that God has designed them for. But they never stop being a redeemed people. They die in the wilderness. And that's what we have to learn for our application. Don't be scared that you can lose your salvation. Be scared that you cannot enter into the rest God has designed for you as a believer priest of the church age. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for providing a voice for two hours this morning. And Father, if you don't mind, there's two more coming up this evening. So be faithful. We thank you for Hebrews. We thank you for the warnings. And now that we're not scared about what the warnings don't say, we want to be truly fearful in ungodly reverence for what the warnings really do say and what it is we miss out on when we fail to enter into your rest. So open the eyes of our understanding, Father, that we might operate in our priesthood together with the apostle and high priest of our confession. Thank you for this immense privilege in Christ. What a joy. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.